This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cohn Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. As some of you know, I was in Los Angeles last week at a gathering of a lot of priests and uh, we did what we do. We had meetings and things like that. But there was a moment when uh, we started talking about Kazan. We do the lineage. He's the last name that we say. It's Dogen, then Kon Ijo, then Tetsugikai, then Kazan Jokin. And we started talking about how uh, we don't treat Kazan very well in the tradition. We say that there are two founders. There's Dogen and there's Kazan. And if you go to a full temple in Japan that has all of the statuary and all the stuff, there will always be a little statue for Dogen and a little statue for Kazan. And if not that, then there will be a little scroll for Dogen, a little scroll for Kazan. But they both, they get to be there. And but but even though we say that he's the other founder, there's a bias. He founded the other big monastery, Sojiji, and that's the Keizan Temple. And people who train at Sojiji have a very strong feeling about Keizan. But for everybody else, he's kind of he's kind of second. And there are some reasons for that. And I wanted to, so I wanted to introduce Kazan a little bit tonight, and then I wanted to read a little bit of, of what he wrote, because he was actually, he was remarkable. Uh, so you, you can't really talk about Kazan without talking about Dogen. And we know a lot about Dogen, because we've been talking together about Dogen for three years. And Dogen was, I think, in our imagination, he was very, he was very upright, and he was very strict, and he was kind of pure. He had this idea about bringing back something that was authentic. And so he developed these monastic forms, and, and those forms uh, were very much about moment-to-moment practice. He wasn't so interested in what other people were doing. He wasn't so interested in ceremonies. He wasn't so interested in um, the kinds of ceremonies that have become standard in Soto Zen, in which people... Uh, chant and then offer merit. That really wasn't his thing. His idea of ceremony was that when you brush your teeth, you do it just like this after chanting a verse. right? And you hold a cup just like this and you open a door just like this. That was his sense of ceremony. So that when he died, his funeral was that his disciple, Ko Nejo, chanted a very short little sutra three times. And that was it. <laughs> that was the end. That seemed appropriate to that kind of teacher. And Ko Nijo followed. Tetsugikai followed. And the joke about Dogen always is that everybody wants to train the way Dogen trained, but that probably the only person who trained the way Dogen trained was Dogen. <laughs> that probably the tradition started to change as soon as he died. Because no one could really... No one had the patience to do every little thing just like that. 
So immediately people start tweaking it or they start saying, you know, every fifth day you can skip that one part or whatever that is. So we finally get to Kazan. And I, I have to confess, I don't know deeply about Kazan's history. I don't know where Kazan came from, or maybe I did at one point, but I've forgotten because I'm wrapped up in all of this too. But when Kazan came along, he was considered to be a popularizer of Soto Zen. Until that time, it had been a bunch of people in a monastery in the mountains with very little contact with the outside world and this rigorous schedule. And Kazan came along and he made it um, make sense to people outside the tradition. And one of the ways that he did that was he started to synthesize with things that people were doing uh, in Buddhism in Japan, including these kinds of ceremonies where in which we chant and we offer merit. So ceremony in the more traditional sense of ceremonial became important under Kazan. And I think what's happened over the years is that though uh, there was kind of a political decision to, decide, to acknowledge him as a second founder. And in fact, I think it's realistic to say that, that the lineage may not have continued without someone like Kazon coming along. Uh, there's always been this feeling that Dogen was, was the pure thing and that Kazon somehow, he muddied the waters a little bit. Uh, Another thing that he did that was, that was critical was that up until him, and, and so he's the, he would be what, the 32nd, no, 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 no the 50, 56th person in the lineage from the time of the Buddha, I believe. Um, until then, the way that we understand that lineage is that uh, the Buddha translated to Maha, transmitted to Mahakashapa, Mahakashapa transmitted to Ananda, and so on, and it was one-to-one. One teacher, one student, and then one student, and then one student, all the way to Dogen, still one. Dogen had one student to whom he transmitted. That student had one student. That student had one student, but that student was Kazan, and Kazan transmitted to a lot of people. I don't remember how many. No, I'm sorry. He transmitted to two. He transmitted to two, but it was out of that that then Soto, the Soto lineage became something large because those two transmitted to a few and then a few and a few. And this thing that had been a straight line suddenly had capillaries. So that when we chant the lineage, we only chant Kazan because that's the only name we can all agree on. It's the last name upon which we can all agree. That too, I think, though it was uh, so instrumental in keeping the school going, has a little bit of a feeling of, you know, come on, you couldn't choose one. You know, it, it seems uh, wishy-washy. Kazan was not as prolific as Dogen, but he wrote a few things that are really important. One is what we call now the Kazan Shingi, which was his set of um, monastic standards. Up until then, everyone trained using the Eihei Shingi, which was Dogen's set. Now, if you go to a monastery in Japan, we basically follow the Kazan Shingi. It outlines which ceremonies happen when and that kind of thing. Um, 
there were philosophical reasons why in Dogen's schedule, the day begins in the evening of the night before. So there's a moment when it's no longer the day that it has been, and now it's the next day. <laughs> These things make sense if you go through old Chinese texts and things. But Kazan said, well, we wake up in the morning. So the day will start, you know, the way normal people think that the day starts. I think that was well received. The other thing, though, that, that he wrote that is really held in high esteem, uh, but often, but we forget about it, is a text called Zazen Yojinki, which is his instructions for Zazen. They're not the same as Dogen's. They're not in conflict, but they're not the same. They don't feel the same. And I wanted to talk about them. Because I think there's a lot of good stuff, really good stuff there. So tonight I'll read just, just a little bit, just so we get a, a taste. Sitting is the way to clarify the ground of experiences and to rest at ease in your actual nature. Now, I don't know if you remember, but when we read Dogen's instructions for Zazen, he starts out, in Japanese it says, it says uh, Zazen wa shuzen ni arazu. That's, that Zazen is not some volitional practice. It's not something, it's not, it's whatever kind of Zen it is, it isn't Zen that you're doing. And then he goes on to say, in fact, it is the Dharma gate of joyful ease. So they're starting out on the same page. Here Kazan is saying, sitting is the way to clarify the ground of experiences, that's worth talking about, and to rest at ease in your actual nature. This is called the display of the original face and revealing the landscape of the basic ground. So he's beginning from this idea that there's a kind of starting point. That there's a kind of, there's a kind of home base for a human being. He calls this the ground of experiences. He calls it actual nature, the original face, the basic ground. And then he says, we're clarifying this and we're revealing this and we're resting at ease in this. It's really important when we encounter anything like this to not go where our mind automatically goes, which is to think of whatever this is as something other or something lost or something obscured. When he says your actual nature, you think, oh, I have another nature that's not my actual nature. Right? And it, sounds, it can sound very exciting because I have a, I have a real one. You know, I'm going to find it. I'm going to sit in Zazen and I'm going to reveal the thing that is true and all the other stuff will just disappear. Right? It's very 
exciting because there's a, there's adventure. There's something you're going to find, right? There's a diamond. There's a pearl. That is not what he means. I'm sometimes hesitant to say something like that because who knows what people meant. But I'm confident about this because, because he's coming out of a conversation. And the conversation is never that. The conversation is never that there is something that is the kernel of you or that is an unformed part of you that should be formed because that would be true. The conversation is that you, right here, are 100%, but that it probably doesn't feel that way. Why not? A lot of it has to do with this notion of resting at ease. We don't rest at ease. In the same way that I've said, it just so happens that the brainwave patterns of Zazen happen to be the same as the brainwave patterns of deep, dreamless sleep. The experience of Zazen has to do with when you're not trying to do Zazen. The only thing more difficult than doing something correctly is not trying to do something that you think can be done correctly while you're doing it. <laughs> and so when we sit, we, we take up this posture and then we contract around it. If you do yoga, you, you know that in order to stretch a muscle, you have to contract a muscle, right? There's no pure stretch unless you're on a rack. <laughs> Intuitively, we understand this. And so we sit here and we think, well, I'm going to stretch my mind. And the way that we stretch our mind sometimes is by contracting everything else, right? Or more, more to the point, maybe we think, I'm going to stretch the part of my mind that I think is the spiritual part of my mind. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to clench the rest of my mind so that nothing else can interfere. Nothing else can come in. People are smiling because they're guilty. This is why, or this is part of why, in the last few months, when we've been doing Newcomer's Night, I've been asking everyone to go ahead and contract from the beginning. Take a memory or a fantasy or a regret or a hope and just go ahead, before you even start, wrap yourself around it like, like like you're a cat with a ball and hold it and play with it and exhaust yourself around that thing and then experience just, just dropping it. Not pushing it out, but getting tired. Right? If you don't really recognize what contraction is, then you don't know what it is to let go. Right? And most of the time we don't realize the degree to which we're clenching around something. 
I was thinking about this because the, a, a teacher I know named Isho Fujita, he was taking us through an exercise and he was saying, and you can do this too, he had us sitting in chairs and he said, you know, to find the posture of Zazen, the first thing you do is you find the posture that's not. So he said, go ahead and roll your back. right? Roll back on your hips so that your back is round and your head is forward. And feel how, even though this feels lazy, at the same time, it's exhausting to sit in this way. You're actually working really hard. You're working really hard in your stomach to do this, right? And then once you've done that, go ahead and roll forward. And then roll your hips forward as far as you can so that you feel that stretch in your back. You're trying to push your belly button down to the ground. And roll your shoulders back, right? Mm-hmm. Right? This is the other way we do it. And then drop that. Zazen is in between those two things. It's not volitional. Sitting down is volitional, right? There's a, there's a choice to be made there. But then you sit and you let the blocks just stack. This is not a stack. And this is not a stack. Somewhere in here, your body isn't doing anything. Now I'm saying this and you're thinking, ah, oh, there's, a, there's a right way. <laughs> right. And I'm going to find it. Next time I'm going to find it, and I'm going to do it just like that. And I'm going to find the place in the middle, and then as soon as I find it, there's going to be like a locking sound. All right? chunk And I'll just stay right there. And that's not it. That's not it either. If you watch... Uh, uh, sped up video of someone doing zazen, right? It is not a person who's perfectly still. If a person is perfectly still the whole time they're doing it, I'm going to go out and say they're doing it wrong. Because there's no relationship to the body, right? That's someone who's just able to clench for 45 minutes. What you really see when you people doing, see people doing zazen, if they're doing it in an active way, in an honest way, is that they're sitting, and every once in a while, might be a little turn, and they kind of, you know, find their neck a little bit. And they're always in the process of settling in. Not to force it, but because these motions are natural. I learned a wonderful word over the last week. It's pendiculation from the same teacher. Pendiculation. Pendiculation is, refers to the involuntary movements that we make in response to our bodies. Especially if you, like if you yawn and you stretch. Maybe this time I do it like this. Because my body just needs to do that. I don't think about it. If you think about it, it gets really weird. 
right? If you plan it, if you think, well, I'm going to yawn, and this time I'll do the football throw, right? But next time I yawn, oh, maybe I'll do something else. There's something that your body just does, right? And you see this with animals. You see this with, you know, cats. They just, they just move. This is my understanding of what pendiculation is. And, and when we're doing zazen, again, if we're, do, if we're actually being active in zazen, if we're really bringing ourselves to zazen, and this idea of, of rest, then there's lots of kind of small versions of that going on all the time while we sit. Not these big stretches, but we're responding, right? We're here, and we're letting ourselves move. Because it's not that my mind is sitting in its, its some sort of crystal cage doing zazen, and this is the platform for it, right, that needs to hold it up. It's that this is doing zazen. The whole thing. The whole organism. Right? And the whole organism, really, the point of the whole thing is that the whole organism actually knows what it's doing. Right? There's a degree to which zazen, or the the tradition behind zazen, rests on a faith that we already kind of understand what to do. We're already at 100%. So there's a trust when you sit. To a degree, yes, there's a trust in the posture because we've been taught this. But then once we get there, there's this other trust that we know how to do this. And so, you know, we adjust a little bit. And we trust our bodies to do this. And we relax. Not because it's supposed to feel a particular way, but because it's not supposed to feel a particular way. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.